www.chatradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of almost 25 years in the practice of psychiatry, striving to better inform the general public about mental health issues and to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. And welcome to this, the June 8th, 2016 edition of Psychiatry Today, pre-recorded for airing on that date. One of the top mental health stories from the past week, a study that uh, also made it to the mainstream media, workaholism is tied to psychiatric disorders, uh, according to a large national Norwegian study. Workaholism frequently co-occurs with ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety in general, and depression in general. So all of you people who have been accused of being a workaholic or may realize that you are, listen up to this, something you definitely want to know about. Researchers at a university in Norway and then also colleagues at Yale University here in the States have examined the associations between workaholism and psychiatric disorders pretty large sample size. It was over 16,400 working adults. Workaholics scored higher on all the psychiatric symptoms than non-workaholics. And uh, lest those of you who are eager to have a definition of workaholism being disappointed, don't worry. Later in this article, they present... Uh, a way to assess for workaholism. So we'll get to that shortly. But let's see what they found. The study showed that workaholics scored higher on all the psychiatric symptoms than non-workaholics. And among the workaholics, the main findings were that 32.7%, almost a third, met criteria for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder that was only 12.7% among non-workaholics. 25.6% a quarter met criteria for OCD, uh, as opposed to only 8.2, oh, sorry, 8.7% among non-workaholics. And finally, 33.8% met criteria for anxiety versus 11.9% of 
non-workaholics. Oh, sorry, one more statistic. Depression, 8.9% met criteria for depression who were workaholics versus only 2.6% who were not workaholic. Very interesting. So the predominant types of problems were anxiety and ADHD, much more so than depression, which is kind of interesting and kind of reassuring in a way, too, that workaholism is not associated with depression in a big way. Well, I mean, even though the prevalence is is higher compared to non-workaholics. So it clearly seems that taking work to the extreme may be a sign of deeper psychological or emotional issues. Now, this is the key point. They can't say, based on this research, whether this reflects overlapping genetic vulnerabilities, and most importantly and interestingly, they can't say, all right, well, does this, is, this, this, is the disorder leading to the workaholism, or is it the other way around? Is the workaholism causing these disorders? When I saw those stats about ADHD, it certainly occurred to me, well... Maybe people with ADHD uh, always have to be busy doing things and multitasking because they can't sustain their focus on one thing at a time, and it's easier for them to keep their busy minds occupied uh, by just working all the time. Certainly one possible reason for that. In any case, uh, the study was published in the open access journal PLOS One. Findings clearly highlight the importance of further investigating neurobiological deviations related to workaholic behavior. In the wait for more research, physicians should not take for granted that a seemingly successful workaholic does not have ADHD-related or other clinical features. Their considerations affect both the identification and treatment of these disorders. So it is important to screen people who have this tendency for any type of anxiety or mood disorder or ADHD. Now, as promised, here are seven diagnostic criteria for workaholism and uh, hopefully if you're assessing yourself to see if you're a workaholic using these criteria you can be honest and objective uh, about yourself it's usually something that's very difficult to do Uh, so perhaps a more objective way to do it is if you have someone close to you who you can trust to uh, judge you without bias uh, according to these criteria. First, you think of how you can free up more time to work. Think about that. Instead of thinking how you can free up more time for leisure, thinking of how you can free up more time to work. That is pretty scary, isn't it? The next one is, you spend much more time working than initially intended. Well, that speaks for itself. Just That's the whole core of the problem, right? Spending too much time working. 
The next one is you work in order to reduce feelings of guilt, anxiety, helplessness, or depression. So that means if someone didn't drive themselves to work as much, uh, then they might be suffering from guilt about not working, anxiety about not working, or anxiety about how much work they have left to do, and helplessness, perhaps uh, related to not getting their work done, and depression. Uh, so if you have to work to avoid those negative feelings, again, that's certainly quite a significant problem. Next, you have been told by others to cut down on work without listening to them. Well, that also speaks for itself. Uh, this <clears throat> doing something, even though others point out to you it's too much, is really the hallmark of any type of uh, excessive Behavior, whether it's abuse of a substance or uh, any other type of behavioral issue. You become stressed if you are prohibited from working. That is certainly a telling sign, isn't it? Uh, on the surface, it might seem like, well, when would you be prohibited from working? Unfortunately, it's all too easy to keep working even if the workplace is closed. There's working on email, working on deals online, uh, voice text, all of that. But believe it or not, there are circumstances where all of those avenues would not be available to you. And if that, the idea of that makes you anxious or stressed, then to paraphrase Jeff Foxworthy, you might be a workaholic. Uh, <clears throat> this brings to mind something uh, that I previously read about where there was a workplace in Scandinavia where to make sure that people didn't overdo it, they shut the email servers down in the evening so that even if you wanted to look at work email, you could not access it. So that's a way of forcing people to say, nope, you're not at work anymore. Give it a rest. And apparently, if someone were a workaholic, that would not allow them to calm down and rest. That would, in fact, aggravate their stress. Next, you deprioritize hobbies, leisure activities, and or exercise because of your work. Wow, think about that. So, that means that you will let work crowd out all those other activities which is the wrong approach instead you should guard the time you spend on exercise especially because it's so important not just to physical health but mental health as well and the time you spend on leisure activities especially if that includes family family life is very important your spouse your children and hobbies Right, Spending time on hobbies, very important. It's how we recharge our batteries and cope better with stress. So instead of guarding the time spent on those things jealously, you let work crowd those things out. This is uh, a good way to run yourself into the ground from work-related stress.
And speaking of which, the seventh and last criteria for workaholism, you work so much that it has negatively influenced your health. Now, scoring a four, which is often, or five always, on four or more criteria, identify a workaholic. Um, well, we'll wrap up our thoughts about this workaholism study and some, just, some suggestions to achieve better work-life balance. And we'll have other mental health-related news when we come back, including, after we finish this Stress in the Workplace update, a military mental health update, you're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Buzz off with Lawyer Liz. Join me each week, Wednesdays at 2 o'clock, as we talk drones, Internet of Things, and technology. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. And we started off this week's podcast with a stress in the workplace update talking about workaholism and the strong association between multiple types of mental health problems and workaholism uh, anxiety depression OCD and ADHD now uh, the Bergen work addiction scale uh, operationalizes workaholism by the same symptoms as traditional addictions, uh, salience, mood modification, conflict, tolerance, 
withdrawal, relapse, and problems. And again, if uh, we put this into context and review the criteria, you'll see what those things mean. You think of how you can free up more time to work. You spend much more time working than initially intended. You work in order to reduce feelings of guilt, anxiety, helplessness, or depression. You've been told by others to cut down on work without listening to them. You become stressed if you're prohibited from working. You deprioritize hobbies, leisure activities, and or exercise because of your work. You work so much that it has negatively influenced your health. It doesn't take much imagination that if you just substitute drink or use drugs for, uh, instead of work or working and all those criteria, it's exactly the same as uh, an addictive disorder when it would come to uh, some kind of substance. Now, in line with previous research, 7.8% of this current sample uh, was classified as workaholics, which is close to an estimate 8.3% found in a uh, nationally representative study that was conducted in 2014. So the take-home message is clearly that people need to do a better job working on work-life balance, okay? Uh, you know, it's just so crucial not to let work take over your life. The old expression, work to live, don't live to work, right? Um, it's a question of not letting work crowd out leisure or hobby activities or time with family and especially not exercise um, if someone is telling you you should not work so much you're becoming stressed and affecting your health you should pay attention to those signals not press on and ignore them alright so uh, if you recognized yourself in that criteria Hopefully you'll act on it and do something about it to achieve better work-life balance. Or if you're listening to this and you recognize someone close to you in those criteria, you'll be able to convince them to do something to achieve better work-life balance. Next on Psychiatry Today, we have a military mental health update. A study examines suicide attempt risk factors, methods, and timing related to deployment among active duty soldiers. Suicide attempts, like suicides, have increased in the United States Army over the last decade. To better understand and prevent suicidal behavior, researchers from the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences University of California, San Diego, Harvard Medical School, and the University of Michigan examined timing and risk factors for suicide attempts among U.S. Army enlisted soldiers. They found the highest risk was among those who never deployed, and those who never deployed were at the greatest risk during their second month of service. 
This was a little bit surprising and counterintuitive. Uh, in the past, it had been thought that those with multiple deployments uh, were more at risk. Now, this study included more than 975,000 enlisted soldiers. It was published online on May the 25th in Journal of the American Medical Association Psychiatry, and it was a component of the Army study to assess risk and resilience in service members. Researchers used administrative records to examine risk factors, methods, and timing of suicide attempts by soldiers currently deployed, previously deployed, and never deployed from 2004 through 2009. Of the soldiers included in the study, 9,650 had attempted suicide. About 86% of those were younger than 30. About 60% were non-Hispanic white. About 76% were high school educated and about 55% were currently married. According to the study, these findings suggest predictors of suicide attempts, which could provide greater opportunities for prevention of suicidal behavior in the military as well as in other populations. The authors also report that about 40% of enlisted soldiers who had never deployed accounted for about 61% of the enlisted soldiers who attempted suicide. Among those who never deployed, risk of a suicide attempt was highest in the second month of service. For soldiers on their first deployment, the risk of suicide attempt was highest in the sixth month of deployment. And for previously deployed soldiers, the risk was highest five months after they returned. These are some pretty unexpected, if not at least interesting, findings. Uh, you wonder what's going on with the never deployed soldiers that they're so vulnerable during their first two months of service. Uh, I think it begs the question, are more people who have pre-existing mental health problems going into the armed services and uh, the hard time they have adjusting in the first two months may be what tips them over the edge. Now, additionally, soldiers who were currently and previously deployed were more likely to attempt suicide with a firearm across deployment status, suicide attempts were more likely among soldiers who were women in their first two years of service and had received a mental health diagnosis in the previous month. Well, there's your answer about that. So these were more likely to be people who had already received a mental health diagnosis. Soldiers with a previous deployment also had a higher risk of suicide attempt if they screened positive for depression or post-traumatic stress disorder after they returned from deployment, especially at a follow-up screening about four to six months after deployment. The <clears throat> post-deployment 
increase in attempts, most likely related to the extreme difficulty readjusting to civilian life after having gone through the horrors of uh, combat. Now, according to the study, deployment context is important in identifying suicide attempt risk among Army enlisted soldiers, and a life career history perspective can also help identify high-risk segments of a population based on factors such as timing, environmental context, and individual characteristics. The findings, while most relevant to active-duty United States Army soldiers, highlight considerations that may inform the study of suicide risk in other contexts, such as during the transition from military to civilian life. Well, again, uh, like a lot of the other recent research that's been done on this issue, uh, it is reassuring that a lot more is being learned about the risk of suicide in our military, and uh, it's a growing problem. The rates of suicide are much higher than in the civilian population. It's great that more is being learned, more studies and research are being done. Hopefully this will very soon translate into those suicide rates going down. Uh, let me just remind all of you listening out there, uh, let support the troops be more than just a convenient to quote slogan, uh, but really, in my opinion, the best thing you can do to support them is make life for their families here back home easier. Uh, a lot of their stress is because they can't be with their families to help them with day-to-day -day issues. So if you know a military family, help the civilian spouse with errands, child care, uh, home repairs, whatever they're dealing with, they're stressed about uh, because their spouse is overseas in the military. That's really, I think, a great thing that you can do to help our troops. All right, next item on psychiatry today. Patients with bipolar disorder, uh, unfortunately, quite commonly and typically, have very limited acceptance of their diagnosis. And they deny it, they stop taking their medicine when they're feeling well, uh, they love being manic, the feeling of being on top of the world and elevated mood and feeling like there's nothing they can't do and they have tons of energy, so they'll stop taking their medication in order to capture that feeling again and inevitably have another severe disabling episode. Well, the, there are consequences of having these episodes, and the study we're going to talk about after the next break details the toxicity to the brain of bipolar disorder episodes. That's right. Any episode, either a manic or a depressive episode of bipolar disorder, actually is toxic to the brain. That and more when we come back on Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, 
You probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's web radio. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, Visit LibertyOnCall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. America's Web Radio is the most diverse and informative radio station anywhere in cyberspace. We have shows about health, business, current events, entertainment, home care, and everything in between. We appreciate your continued support of America's Web Radio. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay bringing you all the latest mental health related news. A new study finds that ever-changing moods of bipolar disorder are toxic to brain cells. In fact, the blood of bipolar disorder patients in and of itself is toxic to brain cells and affects the connectivity ability of brain cells. Bipolar disorder is a severe and complex mental illness. It has a very strong genetic component, and it affects 2% of the world population. The disorder is characterized by episodes of mania and depression that may alternate throughout life and usually first occur in patients' early 20s. Most recently, physicians have started to group patients as early or late stage. Early stage bipolar disorder patients are classified as those who have had fewer episodes of either mania or depression, whereas late stage patients have had more episodes with more severe effects and are less likely to respond to treatment. 
This classification between early and late stage bipolar disorder patients has more to do with episode recurrence and severity than the length of time the patient has had the disease. Bipolar disorder diagnosis may be difficult to establish and it may take up to 10 years from the first episode to establish the diagnosis. There is no cure for bipolar disorder, but psychotherapy and prescription medications such as antipsychotics, mood stabilizers, may alleviate the symptoms and enable people to lead a normal life and function perfectly well as long as they continue to take their medication. The brain of bipolar patients shows changes such as reduction in volume and reduction in neuroprogression, that is, the pathological version of an otherwise normal mechanism by which the brain rewrites its connections between brain cells. This is a process that is associated with learning, memory, and even recovery from brain damage. In bipolar disorder patients, this process is associated with the loss of brain cell connections and clinical and cognitive deterioration. A previous study has shown that the blood levels of several markers related to inflammation and oxidative stress and neurotrophins, which are proteins that promote the growth and survival of brain cells, uh, in bipolar disorder patients, these parameters are associated to recurrent mood episodes. Uh, so in people with recurrent episodes of bipolar disorder, you're going to see higher blood marker values associated with inflammation and oxidative stress and lower levels of the neurotrophins. For instance, the brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, which is a protein that helps promote the growth and survival of brain cells and helps establish the needed connectivity among brain cells, is lower in bipolar disorder patients, as is EGR3, or Early Growth Response 3, a different protein um, associated in helping the brain cope with environmental changes such as stressful stimuli. Besides these alterations, another study has shown that abnormally low levels of chemokines, which are proteins that send signals to other cell components, have also been observed in the blood of bipolar disorder patients. If these blood markers can be associated to the severity and frequency of mood episodes in bipolar disorder patients, is it possible that they are also associated to changes observed in the brain of these patients? To answer this question, researchers exposed mature brain cells to blood serum 
from either healthy individuals or patients with bipolar disorder. The group then observed that brain cells exposed to serum from bipolar patients had a significant loss in the density of neurites. That is a measure which is used to estimate the number of connections that brain cells make uh, as compared to the neurite density of neurons exposed to serum from healthy individuals. <clears throat> Basically, it's a measure of the normal healthy growth and connectivity of brain cells if you are not seeing the development of these neurites. Now, <clears throat> interestingly, when serum from early stage and late stage bipolar disorder patients was analyzed separately, no difference in neurite density was observed between brain cells exposed to serum from early stage patients and those exposed to healthy controls serum. However, a significant difference remained in the health of the neurons exposed from the late stage patients serum versus the early stage patients or the healthy controls. The group also found that the number of neurons was not that different between samples except for those exposed to serum from patients at very late stages of the disease. The results indicate that the blood of bipolar disorder patients in and of itself is toxic to brain cells or clearly some component in the blood and it affects the connectivity ability of brain cells and since they saw a difference between early stage with fewer episodes versus late stage with more episodes it's clear that the more episodes a patient has the more these cellular components are produced that impair the brain's ability to deal with environmental changes, inflammation, and stress. Now, as far as the authors can tell, this is the first study to show the toxic effects of the serum of bipolar disorder patients on human brain cells, and it presents a study model for a disease, bipolar disorder, for which there is no animal model yet developed in order to explore possible new treatments and learn more about the illness. Future studies will therefore focus on finding drugs that can protect bipolar disorder patients' brain cells from the toxic effects of their own blood. Well, let me then mention what the take-home points are for patients with bipolar disorder. It's very important that you get treatment to prevent episodes. Uh, the more you keep the illness under control, the less likely there will be this toxic element in your blood that damages your brain cells. And if you have more and more episodes, uh, either from not taking proper care of the illness by not taking medication or other reasons 
that is going to increase the risk. There will be toxicity to your brain cells, impaired growth and progression and survival of brain cells, lack of the appropriate connectivity among brain cell groups. And this, sadly, is what leads to the deterioration of functioning in people with chronic bipolar disorder. Uh, They become increasingly losing their ability to function and support themselves, become disabled, and very frequently have problems with memory. Uh, Perhaps this study showing the damage to brain cells and uh, the uh, inability for them to properly grow and survive may explain the complaint that I hear about quite frequently in long-term bipolar disorder patients of having trouble with memory. All in all, another really, really good argument for staying on your medication to prevent subsequent episodes, Uh, but let's not be naive about this. Information like that in and of itself is not going to persuade bipolar disorder patients to comply with treatment. Uh, The stigma against the illness is very powerful. The self-stigma that people have and uh, the attractiveness of having all the energy and euphoria that goes with mania, uh, those, those issues pull powerfully on bipolar patients and um, make it more likely they will uh, unfortunately self-sabotage and stop their medicine to have another episode. Well, <clears throat> next on Psychiatry Today, we're going to take a look at how some researchers have found a particular region of the brain that doesn't function normally in patients with depression. Uh, this is just another way that I like to combat the stigma about mental illness uh, for those who say that depression is not a real disorder, it's just a weakness of will or character. Uh, whenever scientists come up with physical evidence from brain studies that there are changes in the brain of people who have depression, uh, this hard physical evidence certainly refutes those uh, unfortunately uh, negative and prejudiced ideas and uh, you know, also hopefully will give us some insights into what's going wrong in the brain of people who suffer from depression and potentially uh, guides new treatment. Uh, so we'll have that and more mental health related news when we come back from this next commercial break. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, 
and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, your host, Dr. Scott Bay, with all the latest mental health-related news. Next up, a region of the brain that responds to bad experiences has the opposite reaction to expectations of aversive events in people with depression compared to healthy adults. Just another in the growing number of insights into what specific structures in the brain participate in regulation of mood states and how that happens. The study was published in the journal Molecular Psychiatry. It found that the habenula, that's H-A-B-E-N-U-L-A, a pea-sized region of the brain, functions abnormally in depression. This same research team previously showed that the habenula was activated in healthy volunteers when they expected to receive an electric shock. So when you anticipate you're going to get some sort of aversive stimulus, this brain region is activated. A prominent theory has suggested that a hyperactive habenula drives symptoms in people with depression. They set out to test that hypothesis Surprisingly, they saw the exact opposite of what they predicted. In people with depression, habenula activity actually decreased when they thought they would get a shock. This shows that in depressed people, the habenula reacts in a fundamentally different way. Although we still don't know why or how this happens, it's clear that the theory needs rethinking. Researchers scanned the brains of 25 people with depression and 25 never-depressed individuals using high-resolution functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI. 
fMRI is not your typical MRI that you may have had yourself or that you could get at your local imaging center. Uh, it's a highly specialized type of MRI showing actual functioning of the brain in real time as someone is thinking of certain thoughts or performing certain mental tasks. The participants were shown a sequence of abstract pictures while they lay inside the scanner. Over time, they learned that different pictures were associated with a chance of different outcomes, either good or bad. Images predicting electric shocks were found to cause increased habenula activation in healthy volunteers, but decreased activation in depressed people. There were no differences in the average size of the habenula structure between people with depression and healthy volunteers. However, people whose habenula were smaller in both healthy and depressed patients were found to have more symptoms of something called anhedonia. That means the loss of interest or pleasure in life. The habenula's role in depression is clearly much more complex than previously thought. From this experimental fMRI study, conclusions may be drawn about the effects of anticipated shocks on habenula activation in depressed individuals compared with healthy volunteers. Researchers feel they can only speculate as to how this deactivation of this mechanism is linked to symptoms, but it could be that part this this ancient part of the brain actually plays a protective role against depression. <clears throat> now, what do they mean by ancient part of the brain? If you just look at uh, the brain in a less evolved creature, the habenula is a structure uh, that is there. Uh, now. Animal experiments, uh, sorry, animal experiments have shown that stimulating the habenula leads to avoidance, and it is possible that this occurs for mental as well as physical negative events. So one possible explanation is that the habenula may help us to avoid dwelling on unpleasant thoughts or memories, and when this is disrupted you get the excessive negative focus that is common in depression. Well, in reading about this research and thinking about what they found, another thought occurred to me. There is a very old animal model of depression. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was developed by researchers at the University of Pennsylvania. It's called the Learned Helplessness Model. In this experiment, um, <clears throat> mice or rats are basically put in a small body of water, um, basically a little you know bucket or tub or something. And of course, you know, in order not to drown, they have to swim. They have to uh, actively move um, and try to make it to the side so they can crawl out. Um, and rats or mice that are not depressed will keep moving 
and keep trying to uh, get to the side, get out. Whereas those that are depressed will just simply give up. Uh, they'll figure out, well, there's no way for me to get out of this. I'm, I'm done. Hence the term learned helplessness. And <clears throat> believe it or not, one way that researchers test the results of a drug that they think may help with depression is to give it to these rodents and see if they will swim harder or longer to try to get out of that predicament. Uh, and there's a very strong correlation, believe it or not, between drugs that reduce this learned helplessness in the rats in this predicament and drugs that help treat depression in humans. Uh, I know that sounds hard to fathom, but uh, I, I assure you that is the case. And how I relate that to this research about the habenula is, okay, if, if your habenula is working normally when you're not depressed, you'll react negatively to an aversive stimulus, like you're about to get an electric shock, or maybe as in the case of this learned helplessness experiment, you're in a situation where you're in a body of water and there's no way for you to get out. Uh, if your habenula is not working so well, you'll say, oh, well, you know, um, nothing I can do about this. I'm going to get the shock, and that's that. So there's not as much of a reaction or activation of that area. Very interesting. Regardless, uh, this gives us more insights into how structures of the brain regulate our mood and our emotions uh, I have to admit, it's not exactly clear how this would directly lead to uh, revising treatment. Uh, but again, it is very important to see uh, more insights into the structure and function of the brain in s negative mood states such as depression. <clears throat> now, let's talk about a study that says how the brain makes and breaks a habit. Not all habits are bad. Some are even necessary. It's a good thing, for example, that we can find our way home on autopilot. They're talking about, you've had this experience, right? You're driving home and you start thinking about other things. And before you know it, you got where you were going and you can't remember part of the way. Maybe a little bit scary, but actually nothing really to worry about. If you want to fairly simple non-technical explanation basically what's happening there is your cerebellum drives home for you because it knows all the motor movements associated with driving and directions and all that while your frontal cortex took a trip somewhere else to think about something else uh, other habits uh, washing your hands you know you don't have to think about that or ponder each step but the inability to switch from acting habitually to acting in a deliberate way can underlie addiction and obsessive-compulsive disorders. Working with a mouse model, an international team of researchers demonstrates what happens in the brain for habits to control behavior. The study was published in the journal Neuron, and it provides the strongest evidence to date that the brain circuits for habitual and goal-directed action compete for control. In the orbitofrontal cortex, 
a decision-making area in the brain, then, and also with neurochemicals that are called endocannabinoids, allow for a habit to take over by acting as a sort of a break on the goal-directed circuit. Endocannabinoids are produced naturally. Receptors are in, everywhere in the body and the brain, and they're involved in appetite, pain, mood, and memory. Those are also the receptors that mediate the psychoactive effects of cannabis or marijuana. The orbital frontal cortex is important for relaying information on goal-directed action. Um, now, researchers used optogenetics, being able to turn off brain cells, turn on and off brain cells with light, and when increased activity happens in this area, you see goal-directed activity increase. Decreased activity disrupts goal-directed activity. Uh, so looking at the effects of the endocannabinoids on habitual actions, um, healthy mice can, can turn on and off these goal-directed or habitual behaviors. But if you block certain uh, pathways that react to endocannabinoids, this is disrupted. So the findings may suggest a new therapeutic target for people suffering from OCD or obsessive-compulsive disorder or addictions. Think about it. These are habit-related behaviors that are maladaptive and out of control. So to stop this over-reliance on habit in these disorders and restore the ability to shift from habit to goal-directed action, it may be helpful in the manner that the researchers did to manipulate the brain's endocannabinoid system and reduce habitual control over behavior. Now, this does not mean they're proposing using marijuana, for those of you who might be curious about that. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to the information that I enjoyed bringing to you, and I hope that you have a wonderful, stress-free week until the next time we get together. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.